When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The dream is made real. Ricky Howe rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia. He's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. Uh. Welcome once again, fighter fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Sean Bastow. As always, joined by Johnston Brown for another one-off special during this lockdown period. And today's special is going to be all about the 1984 USA Olympic boxing team with some absolute cracking fighters that came out the back of it. We're going to be discovering their journey to Los Angeles, how they got there, and we're also going to be discussing the performances in the Olympics, how they got on, and ultimately we're going to be discussing how successful that Olympic boxing team is. Before we get into the episode, of course, I want you to go and check us out on social media. Check us out on the Facebook page, which is now BTR Boxing Podcast Network, where you can find this feed and all our other feeds, which includes the Legendary Night series, the Darker Side of Boxing, Career Profiles, and our Ones to Watch series as well. If you want to go on Twitter and you use Twitter, please go and check us out at BTR Boxing Pod, and you can find all the latest episodes on there as well. Now, if you've not subscribed to the podcast, you can do so by checking out on Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spreaker or Player FM, or even TuneIn. If you've not already left us a rating, please go and do it. It really helps us, shows us up in the Apple Podcast charts, gets us to that number one spot, which we've had on a few occasions now, and we'd love to get back there more on a regular basis. So without further ado, this is the next episode of BTR Boxing Podcast. This is all about the 1984 USA Olympic Boxing Team. Born in the USA, the 1984 Olympic United States of America team. A special episode for you guys to listen to 
something completely different, something that we've not covered before, something that we're really excited to cover, and something that brought us so many great fighters out of the back of it, and some of them even went on to become boxing legends. It is a great story, arguably the greatest United States team that went to the Olympics, obviously the, the 1976 team that people will look at and say that weren't a bad, bad little outfit with Sugar Ray Leonard and obviously the Big Brothers etc but I think this is by far the greatest team the United States ever put together and, and, and what an achievement these guys managed to, to do in, in their own town as well. What we're going to do is we're going to go through each individual that took part in the 1984 Olympic boxing team. We're going to talk about the, the lead up to it, we're going to talk about their performance and then we're also going to talk about what happened after the Olympics for each individual but first we're going to give a bit of context to this 1984 Olympic team. It's important to mention first and foremost that the United States of America didn't actually participate in the previous Olympics which was the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. This was because they led a boycott of the Summer Games in protest due to the late 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So in total, as a result, 65 nations refused to participate in them games, whereas 80 countries did actually end up sending athletes to compete in them. So they had this fantastic 1976 Olympic team, which you just alluded to there, that they boycott the 1980 Olympics, and then we don't know what we're going to get out of the 1984 Olympics. If you're an American boxing fan at this point in time, you honestly don't know what you're going to get. For the Americans, therefore, the last time the USA entered the Olympic boxing team was the 1976 Olympics, and they actually won seven medals in total, five golds, one silver, and one bronze in a team, that included John Tate, the Spinks brothers, Leon and Michael, and of course, Sugar Ray Leonard. It is this 1976 team that has continued to be compared to the 1984 team that we're going to recollect on this episode. Yes, uh, it's important that we do mention, obviously, the boycott, because um, the, the repercussions of that was influential in terms of how well the US team did. And I think that's something we will touch on, definitely. And, and as you say, the 76, I mean, a fantastic team. So it was... Obviously, being in Los Angeles as well, they would have had high expectation on these guys, and, and they were they were really adamant to make sure that they put a good enough Olympic squad together. Now, interestingly, six months before the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, the United States actually sent the team over to Moscow to compete against the USSR. Now, it was only Paul Gonzalez who actually featured that made the actual Olympic team. The rest were guys that were a part of the trials. They didn't quite get through it and the USA and the USSR had actually competed against one another in amateur boxing since 1959 so there's a rich heritage for amateur boxing and the Soviets were actually leading the series 26 to 5 so quite you know those Eastern Bloc amateur boxers they're always very very good even today although the US hadn't obviously won 26 5 down they were dominant in the Olympic years so it was the Soviets that got the victory on the night they actually won 8 4 before they would go on to boycott the Summer Olympics, claiming that its athletes wouldn't be safe from protests and possible attacks. Now, to be fair, the Soviet would basically put up a bit of smoke for them. The Soviet government would later state that the American admission had sought to set course for using the games for political aims and anti-Soviet hysteria. So for me and for many others, it was a bit of a poor excuse 
that really didn't have any substance to it. And it was clear the boycott was blatantly in response to the USA boycotting their game four years earlier. So 14 boycotted the 84 games along with the Soviets. There's 14 countries along with the Soviets and the leading three countries in amateur boxing who were East Germany, Poland, and of course, the best of them all, was Cuba. So neither of these countries participated in the 84 games. So it basically opened the door for this fantastic US Olympic team that we're about to discuss. Now the competitors for the United States Olympic boxing trials began with nine preliminary bouts from June the 4th and continuing through till June the 10th. Following the first half of the trials at Fort Worth, the six winners made the Olympic team. Those six included two world champions... Mark Brayland of Brooklyn at £147 and Frank Tate of Detroit £156. The others were Paul Gonzalez of Los Angeles at £106, Steve McCrory of Detroit £112, Robert Shannon of Edmonds, Washington at £119 and Henry Tillman of Los Angeles at £201, who of course ended up beating a certain Michael Tyson 5-0 <laughs> to get on that Olympic team. Now, on the final day of the Olympic box off at the Caesars Palace Sports Pavilion, six more fighters qualified. Terrell Biggs of Philadelphia at 201 plus pounds. It was Pennell Whitaker of Norfolk, Virginia at 132 pounds. And Evander Holyfield of Atlanta at 178 pounds. The others that qualified were 17-year-old Meldrick Taylor of Philadelphia in the 125-pound weight class. Jerry Page of Columbus, Ohio at 139 pounds. And Virgil Hill of Willingston, North Dakota, at £165, who beat Michael Nunn. As we know, Michael Nunn would go on to have a great career, and he beat him 4-1 to one in that trial to get to the Olympic team. From 1952, when America won five goals, led by the middleweight then, Floyd Patterson, up through that great triumph of the human spirit, the 1976 team, I can now, in a nutshell, evaluate this team. I think it's terrific, the deepest we have ever had. So all the boxing events were held at the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena, which is a multi-purpose sports facility that had actually been built in 1959. And it's been home to numerous professional sports teams in Los Angeles. And many Americans that listen to the podcast will know exactly what we're talking about, of course. And it had a seating capacity of around 16,000. The boxing tournament had actually been increased to 12 classes in 1984, adding a heavyweight class with an upper weight limit of 91 kilos, like the professional cruiserweight division. While the heaviest class was now identified as super heavyweights, and at this point in time, there was absolutely no female boxing because it had not been established. So we had the full lineup of the Olympic boxing team there for 1984. And now we're going to talk about each individual and how they performed in these 1984 Olympics. Yeah, and then just, just going back to those qualifiers, I mean, having guys like Michael, Michael Tyson, it's funny to read me there, like, but Mike Tyson and uh, Michael Nunn, Michael's two, two guys that went on to be world champions. Um, so, uh, very interesting that, you know, it just shows you how strong the Americans were at this time. And so we're going we're gonna to run through... Um, more or less in their, in their weight classes and uh, we'll try and keep it that way but also obviously on the medal front as well but so we're going to start with a gentleman that probably would be pulled out in a quiz question so you know maybe maybe keep an eye the one American guy that did not win a medal out of the, the whole squad and 
and his name was Robert Shannon. Now, um, he was, as I say, the only boxer that for US Olympics that did not win a medal. He fought at 119 pounds in a 119 pound division and was in one of the most unforgettable fights in the Olympics, losing to South Korean Moon Shung Kil by a third round stoppage in the preliminaries. Now, interestingly enough, Shannon was actually the team barber. He was actually charging $2 for a trim and $5 for a style haircut. He is actually now working as a barber after not having the most lucrative of professional careers and Speaking of his experience and of being in the Olympics and, and just being a part of it, Robert said, just walking around in LA with my USA sweats on and having so many people come up to me, not even knowing what sport I was involved with and wishing me luck. It was a great experience, all of it. And he did end his professional career, he did turn over and he ended his professional career record of 18 wins, six losses and two draws. So Robert Shannon, the only guy to not win a medal out of this, wonderful US team. Well, at least he was able to go into a career of barbering and cutting hair as well. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's an interesting story, really, that out of all them 12 people on that team, he was the only one that actually win a medal, which is crazy when you think of it like that. So all other 11 competitors that we're going to speak about won a medal, which is why, arguably, it's the best boxing team that America have had. Like I said, go through the weight categories, going into the lower weight categories. We're first of all going to talk about the light flyweight division, £108. Now, in that light flyweight division, the 1983 Pan-Olympic Games silver medalist, Paul Gonzalez, picked up the gold medal without even throwing a single punch. The European amateur silver medalist, Salvatore Todisco of Italy, actually broke his thumb when defeating Zambia's Keith Moila in the semis. So he actually couldn't compete in the final, which gave Gonzalez the medal, well, by default, really, by by a bye. And he was also given the Val Barker Trophy as the best boxer at the 1984 Olympic Games. And this is what he had to say about that experience. I wanted to bring my mother up on the platform for the ceremony, but they wouldn't let me. But still, I'll never forget that moment holding the American and Mexican flags in my hands, listening to the national anthem and feeling so proud of who I was. Now, Gonzalez actually went on to turn professional the following year and went on to challenge bantamweight Orlando Canizales for the IBF title in 1990, but was stopped in the second round due to cuts. He ended up going on to retire in 1991 with a professional record of 18-4. and four. Interestingly enough, Gonzalez actually tried to run for office, but was defeated. He was a car salesman. Gonzalez was the acting president of the Queensland Olympic cancel so there you go a guy that won a gold medal in the olympics he went on to challenge for a world title wasn't successful in that challenge went even went into politics even and ends up going on to the olympic council after all that i think some stories that come out of this episode you'll know very much about and there's some stories like this that i don't think many people will know about absolutely not and paul gonzalez is also winning that that Val Barker trophy as well is, is quite an achievement. And many great fighters picked up that trophy in the Olympics. Didn't quite work out. He won a gold medal though, so they didn't quite work out in the, in the programs, which is something we will see amongst other digital fighters. So we'll move on to uh, the next weight, which is at 112 pounds. It was the flyweight division. Now, the 1982 and 1983 US flyweight champion and Pan American Games bronze medalist was Steve McCrory. Now, he defeated a Yugoslavian, 
Radzet Radzet Povsky. 4-1 in the gold medal final bout. And the Yugoslav was not impressed with the decision. He actually said after the defeat to the 4-1 loss, he said, as long as an American is standing on his feet for three rounds, it is hard to get a decision over him. And he wasn't going to be the first competitor to say that. I'm not saying that it was fixed or it was sided to an American athlete. But there were times when it was. But then obviously we'll go into later. It didn't always work out that way for the Americans either. So Steve, he had managed to obviously, he had a, a great amateur background and, and he did go on to, to win that gold medal. Now Steve did turn professional in 1985. But unfortunately, Steve's professional career never quite panned out the way it should have done. He did end up with or at Emmanuel Stewart's Cronk Gym with his older brother, who was a world welterweight champion, Milton McCrory. But he was keen to progress too quickly, which Stewart did not think was the correct approach. Stewart actually did say, by 1985, Steve had become unhappy that the other Olympic kids were making much more money than he was. He was undefeated and wanted to take a fight in Australia against Jeff Finch for his bantamweight title. He advised against it. I felt Finch was too strong. Steve wasn't ready, but he insisted. He demanded, so I made the fight. Now, of course, Emmanuel Stewart was correct. Steve McCurry lost by a 14th round TKO to Finch, who ironically lost in the quarterfinals of the Olympics to Red Zemkowski, the guy that he actually beat in the final. So, you know, it's all smooth in roundabouts. Now, McCurry did end his professional record, uh, professional career with a record of 31 wins and only one loss, which was obviously Jeff Finch, an excellent man of weight, by the way, world class man of weight, and would later actually go on to pawn his American medal as his life fell into an abyss of substance issues. So, a horrible ending really for Steve, but he did actually have a fantastic amateur record, a decent professional record, first ever one and at one defeat. Maybe he should have bided his time a little bit, listened to Daniel Strudel, obviously a, a legendary trainer, but yeah, it just shows you how, how it all pans out for these. Not always is it all, all sweet and roses at the end of it. Makes you wonder what these guys like this, like Steve McCrory, are actually are up to this this day and age. I mean, it's not something we've gone too deep into in, in terms of researching what Steve or any of the other competitors are uh, that that are more obscure to people are actually doing these days. But it's obviously really sad to to hear about the fact that he had to go and pawn his Olympic gold medal that he won for the American team in 1984. So I wonder if any of the listeners know. Any more background to, to, to where he's at in this day and age? And of course, drop us a tweet at BTR Boxing Pod. I would be quite interested to to know where he's at at this moment in time. Next on the list is 17-year-old Meldrick Taylor, who won the gold medal in the featherweight class, 126 pounds by unanimous decision over Nigeria's Peter Konigawacha. <laughs> Even though he was still only 17 years old when he turned over to the pro game in November 1984. He went on to become a two-weight world champion, holding the IBF Junior Welterweight title from 1988 to 1990 and the WBA Welterweight title from 1991 to 1992. His most famous bout came against the Mexican legend Julio Cesar Chavez on March the 17th, 1990 in Las Vegas. This is one of the most famous comebacks in boxing i'm sure we'll all agree on that one with taylor leading by a wide margin on two of the three judges scorecards going into the 12th round and with only 17 seconds left of the fight he was floored but he managed to get back to his feet before the count 
Referee Richard Steele waved the fight off with two seconds left. Taylor ended his pro career with a record of 38-8-1. He had a fantastic professional career, went on to win world titles in the junior welterweight and welterweight divisions. And I think also the fact that, that I mean, that was two seconds ever. I mean, when I watched that fight, I just think still could have just let him survive the fight. I don't know why he stopped it. I think could have just let him carry on for that. That's just a couple of seconds. He would have won the fighting point. So, you know, I think mentally, I think you're right, as well as, you know, physically, but mentally, he must have literally drained him. And yeah, as you say, he's going to win world titles, but that must have been that defeat there alone is, is an absolute, gosh, it's just a crucifying defeat for Melchick. But, an excellent fight, nonetheless. So we'll move on to our next our next weight, and arguably, probably the most successful of all the fighters was Penel Whitaker. And now Penel Whitaker fought a lightweight, 135 pounds throughout his amateur career. He picked up silver medal in the 1982 World Championships in Munich, Germany, before winning a gold in the 1983 Pan American Games in Cancun, Venezuela, which is a lot of these guys um, did pick up medals in, in the Pan American Games over in Venezuela. Well, now during his amateur days, Whitaker was known. This is a this is a, obviously a side note, but Whitaker was known by his own friends and family as Pete. So he began to emerge as a top amateur, obviously winning those, picking up those medals in those major tournaments. And fans in his hometown of Norfolk would chant "Sweet Pete." So this was later actually misinterpreted by a local writer who thought they were saying "Sweet Pete," and he actually wrote the name in his report, and from that point, the name stuck, and that's why his name was Penel Sweepy Whitaker. Just if you didn't know that, now you know. Whitaker was a southpaw, known for his outstanding defence, he was superb counter-punching, but what made him so impressive was the fact that he had the ability to just stay in the, in the pocket and be very elusive, and, and just people, opponents couldn't hit him. Now, in the Olympics itself, Sweepy did win a gold medal, obviously, after winning four unanimous decisions to make it to the final. Whitaker stopped Puerto Rico's Luis Ortiz in the second round after his handlers threw in the cell, giving Sweet Pea that gold medal. And, and obviously, I mean, we, do we need to go too much into it? Well, I'm sure we'll get this one at some point, Sean, whether it be a career profile or a legendary night. But Whitaker obviously had an exceptional professional career, becoming a four-weight world champion. Everyone titles in a lightweight, like welterweight, welterweight, and like middleweight. Undisputed lightweight title, the lineal lightweight title, welterweight. I mean, I could go on. Penel Sweet Pea Whitaker obviously picked up that medal and uh, he ended his pro career with three wins, four losses and one draw. I'm I'm always be close to them, always be close to all of them, you know. That was the best Olympic team you're going to find in history. You're not going to find a better Olympic team than 1984. You know, um, we just, we, we, were, we were like 11 brothers. We were, everybody had, you know, everybody was like a brother. Nobody's bigger than nobody else. Nobody's better than nobody else. We're just going out here, and we're going to represent the United States, and we're going to get some gold medals. <laughs> and, I know that's right. And we end up getting nine of them, you know? <laughs> so, you know, but uh, no, all, all those guys, all those guys, they're great, they're great guys, and they're my brothers. I think everybody will agree that knows their boxing will understand how good of a fighter Sweet Peeper Nell Whitaker was. A fantastic fighter, and one of, if not the... Fight, the best fighter to come out of it to be honest with you I mean obviously we're going to go into a few yeah. more throughout the episode but for me Penel Whitaker is the, the shining light of these 12 competitors that went into this 1984 Olympics so we'll move up in weight and we go to the light welterweight division at 139 pounds now 
the light welterweight and Pan-American 1983 winner, Jerry Page, went on to win a gold medal by defeating the tournament favourite, Kim Dong-gil, who was a silver medalist in the 1982 World Championships in the quarterfinals 4-1. Page won the gold medal when he won a unanimous decision over Thailand, Dawi Um Punmanha, in the final. Now, Page recalls his Olympic memory. Walking out of that tunnel during the opening ceremonies, seeing all those people, hearing the music, it hit me like, bam, there was a feeling of reality to it that I'll never forget. So, for Jerry Page, he actually never went on to hit the heights that he wished he would have done when he turned over. He actually went on, most famously, to lose by decision against Frankie Randall in 1989, before retiring in 1990 with a professional record of only 11-4. and So he only had them 15 fights in his career, and he didn't get to the heights of, say, a Pernell Whitaker, who we've just spoken about, who also medalled as a gold medalist in, in the same Olympics. So it is pretty crazy to think that some of the guys went on to become absolute legends of the sport, but guys like Jerry Page didn't really leave his mark on the professional scene. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it, how it works out. Obviously, we just kind of work for Magic Taylor, two guys that went on to become world champions. But, um, yeah, it didn't quite work out for Jerry. But, you know, winning again, winning the gold medal, another gold, gold medal winner in the Pan American Games in 83. A lot of these guys did that. And, you know, world championships as well in 82. I mean, clearly a great amateur sometimes it just shows you that sometimes you can't people just assume you've had this fantastic amateur career you're going to do well in in the pros it doesn't work like that we see it with Tyson there you spoke Tyson not making this team you, you'd think about it now I'm sure they would have probably stuck him in but you know we'll, we'll move on in, and obviously the world weight division the next weight's 147 pounds a name that we'll all be familiar with and it's Mark Breland and uh, Mark Breland was the 1982 world champion of in his class and he came into Los Angeles both as the favourite and actually the most publicised boxer in the 1984 Olympics. He was a five-time Golden Gloves champion and a three-time US champion from 1981 to 83. And and when you do, you can watch it on YouTube, when you do watch the ABC, Howard Corsell, and he speaks very highly of Mark Breland. And you can see, and Meldrick Taylor, but they were the names that he felt were going to be big stars. And Breland picked up the worldweight gold medal in dominant fashion after two bouts, never went the distance. He won the other two by unanimous decision, including his final, over the 1983 Asian amateur champion, who was Korea's and Young's suit. Breland turned professional in November 1984. Twice winning the WBA World to Weight title. First in 87 against South Korean Harold Volbreach before retaining it in 1989 against South Korean's Sung Son Lee. <laughs> After defending the title four times, he lost against a certain guy that will know as Brits, Lloyd Hogan, in 1990. And since retiring in 1997, with a professional record of 35 3 and 1, he returned making films and he was actually he went on to coach Vernon Forrest and obviously the one we'll all know and the youngsters will probably remember him more so for he'd become the coach of John T. Wilder. A lot of fun in the Olympics because and matter of fact Howard Cosell but Howard Cosell you know just hearing his voice was like wow yeah. but I mean my thing was um, I just enjoyed boxing I just enjoyed I just loved fight I loved the boxing I just wanted to win 
in my first year in the um, Golden Gloves, you know, they, they, they used to turn the lights out and they had that beam, you know, they turn the lights out, they had that beam of light on, you walk in the ring, they tell you record and everything. And right then and there, I was like, I made it. And if I never boxed again, I wouldn't care. As a matter of fact, I was in the Junior Olympics at 147 pounds. And so going into the Golden Gloves in 1980, I trained so hard, I went down to 139. So my first year, I won at 139. And to me, that was bigger than the Olympics because Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier fought there. And so that was the Mecca right there. And so it was like, if I didn't fight anymore, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm good. I've been satisfied. I mean, I got, I got more, well, I guess, I was, well, I was, I was known before that, then I became well-known after, <laughs> after that. Um, but it was a lot, I mean, a lot of, um, I got a lot of attention after that, a whole lot of attention. You know, people wanted to see more. And so, I mean, I used to spar with Tommy Hearns and all of these guys, so it was like, I got a chance to move around even more after that and to spar with a lot of different guys. Absolutely. A brilliant boxer and one that I would highly recommend you should go and look back on his career and look back on this particular Olympics and you know, just as a side note, we do hope that after the back of listening to this, you do go and check out the 1984 Olympics and, and all the footage that is out there. It's brilliant. There's some brilliant footage of, of these guys in action during the Olympics. So, Mark Breland, famously known as throwing in the towel in Deontay Wilder's recent loss to Tyson Fury. But people will not know him for being an absolute phenomenal fighter inside of the ring and obviously being a WBA welterweight champion in the late 80s as well. So moving into the next weight, which was the light middleweight division at £156 and actually the joint favourite to win this decimated division following the boycotts, Frank Tate came through a contentious quarterfinal before winning a very controversial final against the other favourite, candidate Sean O'Sullivan. Somehow, Tate was given the nod and the gold medal after receiving two standing eight counts in the second round. And he actually won 5 nothing, which is <laughs> unbelievable. And something you alluded to a little bit earlier about how the Americans had it their way and why one of the competitors were complaining about getting decisions go against them. This is a prime example of it. Of course it is. So Frank Tate would actually begin his professional career after this debacle of getting a gold medal in December of 1984 <laughs> and he actually went on to win the vacant IBF middleweight title defeating Michael Olajide by unanimous decision at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas in the October. He defended the title with a stoppage in the 10th round against Britain's Tony Simpson before losing it to a certain Michael Nunn in July of 1988. He did go on to move up to super middleweight and light heavyweight losing in world title fights to Lindell Holmes and Virgil Hill twice. He went on to retire with a professional record, 41 victories and five losses. So that incident there probably didn't deserve that gold medal, but yet he obviously got it. However, his professional career did go on to do pretty well, really winning titles there and, and obviously being in competitive fights with people that are well known at that particular period of time. So fair play to Frank Tate, he probably 
was hated by all the Canadians after the 1984 Olympics for getting that decision over Sean O'Sullivan. But he certainly went on to do something good in his own right in the sport. Yeah, I mean, he was lucky to get to the quarterfinals as well, by the sounds of it, getting that controversial victory there. And, and obviously that, I mean, you would, you'd think two standard eight cans, you're going to, how the hell did you lose 5-0? I mean, he must have been outstanding in that in that round. I don't know. Hey, very, very weird, very weird. But So we move on to the US middleweight team at 165 pounds. And this is the first of, of the bunch, bar obviously the... the, the the one non-medalist, but this was a silver medal. The representative was the bronze medalist in the 1983 Boxing World Cup in Rome, which is something you don't often see when you look at his amateur records. But the 1984 National Golden Gloves champion as well, and his name was Virgil Hill. Uh, he made the final by whitewashing Britain's Brian Schumer and Algeria's Mohamed Zoui in the semi-finals, but, but for the only time in 38 bouts in Los Angeles, an American lost a decision in the final. Hill picked up the silver medal after losing to Sin Yun Siop 3-2. So you just, you, so I think we'll pick up a pattern here that a lot of the Asian boxers were actually really competing well with the Americans at the time. Now, no doubt he would have been massively disappointed, but he would go on to become a two-way world champion in his professional career, he held the WBA light heavyweight title twice in 1987 and 1994, with his second reign starting with a win over the gentleman you were just talking about, Frank Tate. He held the, the title for three years. He would catch the WBA cruiserweight title twice, once in 2000 and then again in 2006. And in 2013, he was actually inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame as well. Virgil Hill is an excellent fire, one that sort of does go under the radar a little bit amongst Taylor and Whitaker and a certain someone else we'll discuss in the next one. But a really good fire, Virgil Hill, and he did come through. You know, he had an excellent professional career. Obviously, another another guy that he did lose to was Jones Jr. But um, Virgil Hill, an excellent fire, hundred percent. Yeah, he was an excellent fighter, and he's another guy that again you should go and go and check him out. He, I think he's a guy that's underrated, and although he he didn't go on to get that gold medal in the Olympics in 1984, he did go on to obviously have a Hall of Fame worthy career, being inducted there in 2013. So Virgil Hill, another great fighter that came off the back of the Olympics, but he didn't actually win a gold medal. Now the next competitor was the same; he didn't actually win a gold medal, he actually won a bronze medal. And it was the 1983 Pan American Games silver medalist, a certain Mr. Evander the Real Deal Holyfield. He was actually favourite to win the light heavyweight gold with the absence of Cuban Pablo Marrero. After winning the first three matches with none going the distance, Holyfield went into the semis against New Zealand's 1983 Commonwealth bronze medalist, Kevin Barry, as a red-hot favourite. With the second round ending, Holyfield landed a left hook that floored Barry. The Yugoslav referee waved Holyfield to a neutral corner and then counted out Barry. He then returned to Holyfield and disqualified him for supposedly hitting Kevin Barry late, saying he had told him to break prior to the left hook, although the video evidence did conclude the referee's reasoning. The pro-American crowd went into absolute turmoil, which resulted in the referee needing to be escorted back 
to his dressing room by the police. <laughs> now, Holyfield lost <laughs> a very controversial decision that even Kevin Barry thought was an injustice, saying to Holyfield after it, you won the fight fair and square. So Holyfield, as we well know, it's well documented, that he would go on to have a very successful professional career, becoming the undisputed cruiserweight world champion in the late 1980s and at heavyweight in the early 1990s. And he's still the only boxer in history to win the undisputed championship in two different weight classes. He'd had very significant bouts with legends of the sport, including Riddick Bowe, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Lennox Lewis, and of course, Mike Tyson in the famous bite fight. He ended his professional career with a record of 44 wins, 10 losses and 2 draws. And of course, inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2017. But in the last 48 hours, he's made the decision at the age of 57 to come back for some exhibition bouts, which is quite an intriguing prospect with a lot of fighters making the decision to come back very, very late on in their lives. This is another instance of another fighter coming back, probably to make a little bit of money because they're absolutely skint. But Holyfield, an absolute legend of the sport, a fighter that we really enjoy covering for, for various different episodes of the podcast that we run. And look at the career he had, having only won a bronze medal at the Olympics. Yeah, and, and I think he was robbed, clearly robbed. He should have gone on to win that gold medal, without a doubt. He would have made it a magnificent like, 10, 10 gold medals. We will mention the other two in a bit. Oh, he, he must have, he was gutted. Clearly, it was a bit of a bit of controversy there. The referee's called break. He hasn't heard it. And I'll tell you one thing, though. When you do look through Holyfield's career, the amount of times he actually fought on after the belt, never got disqualified in the pro game. So he's quite funny. You know? As you say, you know, we will come into the Holyfield at some point uh, very soon, which we'll be releasing. So, yeah, what a fantastic fight Ivan Holyfield was. Only pick out the bronze medal, missing out on that final. And and they didn't have, back then, they didn't have a box off. I think now they do, didn't they? When they had the semi-finals, they have a third and fourth bout. This time, they, back then, they didn't. They had two, two on the podium as bronze medalists. A shame for Evander. Here is a heartbroken Evander Holyfield. Lives in Atlanta, born in Alabama. And Evander, you've just heard what we have heard. But in the course of the bout, did you hear Mr. Novacek say stop once or twice? I, I heard him say stop twice. After I, the second time, after I, after I hit him, I heard him say stop. As he was moving in, after I hit him, he was falling. And you heard it after you hit him? After I hit him, then he said stop. Okay. You must be heartbroken, of course. Yes, I was. Well... It's not the end of life, although it's a terribly bizarre, extraordinary, unfortunate incident. But moving on to, to gold number eight for the Americans, and that number eight was picked up by Henry Tillman, and he was the 1983 Pan American Games silver medalist. He actually lost to Cuban Alero Toya, who was not participating due to the boycott, which installed Tillman as the red-hot favourite. Plus, he had defeated a young Mike Tyson twice to qualify for the team, which we mentioned earlier at the top of the show. And in the final, he faced Commonwealth Games gold medalist from Canada, Willie DeWitt, who had already beaten Tillman twice in the amateurs. Now, Tillman turned the tide with a unanimous decision victory over DeWitt to capture the gold. Plus, he would also meet his future wife, who was actually in the crowd, in the, in the crowd in Los Angeles, Gina Hemphill, 
Now, Gina Hemphill was the granddaughter of the legendary Olympian Jesse Owens. She also carried the Olympic torch in the opening ceremony. Now, Tillman was not as successful in the professional ranks as, as he was, obviously, in the amateurs. He lost in a title shot at Cruiserweight to Holyfield and was knocked out in the first round against Tyson in his return from that shock defeat to Buster Douglas in that defeat in Tokyo. Now, Tillman's professional career ended with a record of 22 wins and six losses. He was known to be a bit chinny, Tillman, as you look through his record. When he, when he actually competed in the pro games against top, top guys, he basically got knocked out. Now, he was, however, cast in Rocky, and he was actually as... Uh, he was a character called Tim Sims, but in, in February 2001, but his life did take a dark turn. He was actually sentenced to prison, six years in prison for attempted murder and voluntary manslaughter charge in 1996 before being released from custody in 2002. And in July 2004, Tillman was sentenced to 37 months in prison uh, after pleading guilty to federal identity theft charges. So... An uh, unbelievable story for, for Henry Tillman. And one, when I uh, when was doing our research, and, uh, I must say that, yeah, it really captivated me. This is a, it's a story that uh, I actually might, wouldn't mind dipping into myself at some point. And we can, I'm sure we can look at what happened to him and how, how his life panned out as badly as it did. Oh, it's a great feeling, you know what I mean? Uh, but I achieved mine at the time, you know, when, when boxing was really at its high, you know, and... and when you win a gold medal, you you with that elite few. You know, you with the Ali, the Wilma Rudolphs, the Jesse Owens, and so on and so forth. You can never take that back, and it's forever. We were concentrating on what we had to do, but uh, we were like a team. Uh, we were like a family, in other words. We traveled everywhere, and they did a great job with us. Pat Nappy and uh, Roosevelt Sanders was assistant coach, and uh, Ken Adams and all those guys. They did an excellent job with us, was traveling us together, in and out the country, around the country, and all the big tournaments. And it gave, well, mostly, mainly me, because I was the least experienced fighter on the team. But it gave me that international and that national experience, because my first time going to Nationals in 82, and I started boxing in March of 82. In December, I was in the Nationals in Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, you know, I'm from L.A., so I live probably eight minutes from the village, so I used to ride my bike up to USC. And so uh, it, it, was, it was fun, because I got to see my mother every day. She worked in Olympic Village at the time, you know, uh, at, at a, a, a department store. And so I would see my mother just about every day, and I would drag Sweet Pea, Breedland, Holyfield all along with me because they wanted to get around. They knew I was from here. We would go to my parents' house to eat. My mother would make something for us to eat and everything. So it was a good time, really a good time for me. And, and most important, I was able to have my family there, my mother and father, uh, preferably. And then I had school teachers that came, you know, especially if people thought I wasn't going to amount to nothing because, you know, I had a a roller coaster uh, uh, upbringing, not from my family side, but all because of things I chose to do. Right. You know, and just being in the streets and in and out of juvenile hall, camp, YA, Scott and Scudder, you know, basically stayed raised with a mother and father parent base. And that's what kept me from being so just totally institutionalized. I think it's one of them stories that is appropriate for our, our brand new podcast that has just been launched which is the darker side of boxing i think henry tillman's career outside of the ring his life outside of the ring would be an appropriate episode to cover for the darker yeah. side of boxing listening to how his career went on to plunge a little bit after losing the big fights that he was involved in for him to then go on and be cast in in a rocky film in rocky five and then obviously had all oh, these yeah. dark turns of 
years in prison and manslaughter charges and it's just absolutely beyond belief that his his career and his life went down the pan so much so like that. So a pretty sad story, probably the saddest story out of all the Olympians in this nineteen eighty four Olympics really when you when you put it like that. So moving yeah. back into to positive notes and the final competitor and the final gold medalist. So this is gold medal number nine by the way. And it's the super heavyweight class, which was actually wide open due to the fact that the amateur legend from Cuba, Teofilo Stevenson, was not competing due to the boycott. So, the representative for America was Tyrell Biggs. And he was the 1982 World Championship gold medalist and the 1983 Pan American Games bronze medalist. Now, after defeating a certain Lennox Lewis in the quarterfinals, Biggs made it to the final, where he would then go on to face... Stevenson conqueror in the World Championships of 1982, the Italian Francesco Diamani. Now, Biggs outpointed Diamani for the second time in a stellar amateur career to win the gold medal. And he would have a fantastic amateur record of 108 wins, 6 losses, 4 draws. But he ended his professional career with a pretty mediocre record of 30 wins and 10 losses. I mean, some people might not say that's mediocre, but given the pedigree that he had, you would have expected him to go on to do more. He did compete in notable bouts, of course, against Mike Tyson, Riddick Bowe and Lennox Lewis, losing all of them by knockout. And his failure to convert his exceptional amateur career into the professional ranks was a result of consistent and constant drug and alcohol addictions. A feature documentary about Tyrell Biggs is actually in production at the moment, and another one that I think many of us will be interested in watching and really finding out what this guy's life was like. An exceptional amateur, a gold medalist, and it didn't work out fully the way he wanted it to. Yeah, and, and just just touching on the uh, alcohol and drug addictions he had, apparently he was he, he was going through that when he fought Mike Tyson as well. So, you know, it filled through. I mean, we look at that professional record of 30 and 10. I mean, you could probably swab a load of those. I'm guessing he was clearly under the influence. So, yeah, the last gold medal, again, uh, two sour notes at the end there of, of two guys that were fantastic as amateurs, but yet just couldn't, they couldn't cut it in the professional games and their, their life just deteriorated quite badly. And, that Tyrell Briggs documentary that is currently in production, I'd love to be able to, I can't wait to see that when that eventually comes out. And to, to be fair, all these guys, I mean, I hope they're all doing well. It's something maybe we should look at, looking at what they did or what they're doing now. Uh, because, I mean, this is a magnificent American team. Nine gold medals, one bronze and one silver. And, and well, I mean, some of the best fighters you'll ever see. And, and the other side note of this as well, it's, it's, it's an interesting fact is that on November 15, 1984, at Madison Square Garden in New York, Evander Holyfield, Mark Breland, Tyrell Biggs, Meldrick Taylor, Penel Whitaker and Virgil Hill all made their professional debuts on the same night. Now, the admission to this show was completely free of charge. Now, that is something that would definitely never happen today, I'll tell you that, but that is a very interesting side note. And I, I believe they were all under main events. What's an unbelievable card? Imagine that. As a, as a fight card. I mean, obviously, what they'd go on to do, of course, would would be very prevalent in their careers. They'd all go on to be champions in their own right, uh, barring, obviously, Tyrell Biggs, of course. But 
all the rest of them on that one particular card at that particular moment in time to be able to go to a to, to that type of a card free admission as well oh man i tell you what people talk about being able to go back and and be ringside for certain fights and although there's many many fights that i'd love to go back and be ringside for i would genuinely be love to have been a observer at ringside to be able to see all these guys making their professional debut the fact that you're going free of charge obviously helps of course so but just going back to the the topic of conversation for this episode today in this this little special is obviously all about the the olympics team from 1984 and obviously we've gone through each individual and the build-up to the 1984 olympics we've talked for each individual's performance in the Olympics and obviously what they've gone on to do afterwards and it'll be interesting now as we said at the top of the show about the comparisons made between this Olympic team and the 1976 Olympic team so we will actually go on to do the 1976 Olympic team as well although we've not done it in in chronological order we are going to go on to to do the 1976 Olympic team just to really break it down and make them comparisons about how they all went on to perform and ultimately what they all went on to do in the career and and really I think what the episode highlights for me is that at one time in the sport America was leading the way for boxing and in 2020 it's not the case anymore for me, it just goes to show you that the quality of the fighters that came out of them two particular Olympics, 76 and 84, were, were creating absolute boxing legends. And it'll be really interesting to make them comparisons about how they all did. And of course, look at the more recent Olympic Games. And then we might even breach out and go into the the last couple of Olympics for Team GB as well, of course, because we've had an absolute plethora of great fighters come out the back of the last few Olympics for, for Great Britain as well. So it's, it has been a really entertaining look at the 1984 Olympic team and, and some of the great competitors. And the fact that they went on to win nine golds, one silver and one bronze out of a team of 12, for me, is absolutely unbelievable. It is. And, and an interesting fact is obviously nine big number for the two Olympics after the US Olympic boxing team, they only medaled, they only got four medals, four medals in those, the next two Olympics. So it just shows you just how successful this team was. Obviously, there was no, no Cuba. A lot of people will always mention the fact that the reason why they did get so many medals was because the Cuban side were not in the Olympics. So that was their decision to do that. But even still, it just shows you just how strong, just how good, a massive, a massive achievement it was for them. Obviously, the other was, the Eastern Bloc countries, with obviously with Germany not being in East Germany, I should be a bit more specific. Obviously the USSR. So, you know, if you've had added those in, you don't know. I mean, we don't know. It doesn't matter now. I mean, it's still a very successful team. Some sad stories and some very great stories. Nine gold medals is impressive. And obviously, as you say, the silver and the bronze. The two guys that have got the silver and bronze as well. And look what their careers went on to do. So, incredible tale. And, 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 I, and I believe that half the members of that team as well earn more than a million dollars as pros as well. So wow. just shows you, I mean, that, you know, obviously the main two being Huddersfield and Whitaker. I mean, I, for me, I will, I will edge towards Penel Whitaker for all the successes that he had and what he went on to do in becoming pound for pound, just a, a true pound for pound champion for, for a good three, four years, which is remarkable. And Holyfield and doing what he done at Cruiserweight and up into the heavyweights 
you know, he almost had like three stages of Holyfield's career. But what a magnificent team. Obviously, Meldrick Taylor, Virgil Hill as well, Bart Breland, some great fighters, great names. And I really, honestly, there, there is a YouTube video of the whole US trial that goes it's about two hours long. I did sit there and watch it. I did do it. I'm, you know, I can't help myself when I start watching that. I've got to watch it. It's actually Howard Cassell as well that comes out of the whole thing. And you do see a young Mike Tyson in there getting beat. And you see them, more or less all of them. And they're all in interviews and stuff. And it's really uh, great to watch. And Emmanuel Stewart's in the corner of many of them. From the Cobb gym, obviously. And uh, Hitman Hearns in, in the audience. So I'd advise anyone to go back, have a little watch. Because it's, uh, it's a great watch, basically. And it's something that will always be remembered. This 84 Olympic US team. A great story and, and a great achievement. Well, it's been an enjoyable episode to cover the 1984 USA Olympic boxing team. Of course, if you've enjoyed this particular episode, let us know on social media, on Twitter at BTR Boxing Pod and the Facebook page is BTR Boxing Podcast. As always, if you've not already subscribed to the podcast, then please go and do so. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any available podcasting app out there. Or even on Spotify as well, you can go and check us out on there if you want to listen to the episode through Spotify. If you are an Apple Podcast user, I say it every single time, but please go and leave us a rating and leave us a review and, and let us know what your true thoughts are on there and we'd be really appreciative of it because it truly helps us as independent podcasters get out to the wider audience for more people to listen to some little specials like this during during this period of time in the world where everybody's picking up on podcasts and really enjoying them so it'd be great if you could spread the word and, and share the love around and and just one more final plug really for for the episode as you've seen on social media part of the btr boxing podcast network we are bringing a brand new podcast here and it is called the darker side of boxing and it is a true crime based boxing podcast all about them particular incidents that a lot of people choose to ignore in boxing Things like Sonny Liston and his passing, things like Arturo Gatti, Edwin Valero, Carlos Monzon, Oscar Bonavina. There's many, many stories that we're going to be sitting down to go through with that particular series. So you can go on and subscribe to that. Please go and check it out. Tell your friends about it. We're really looking forward to getting that one out. As always, Fight Fans, thank you for listening to this episode of BTR Boxing Podcast, the 1984 USA Olympic team. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.